Welcome to today's episode of the Founders Lounge, where I talk to some of the best founders in the UK in order to share their stories, learn their lessons, and hopefully inspire others who want to start a business. So if that's something you're interested in, now is a good time to click that subscribe button. In today's episode, my guest was Nick Telson. He is currently the co-founder of a B2B SaaS company called Strumpet. He is a host of one of the top business podcasts. He's an angel investor in over 50 startups, and he's, I think, best known for his previous company, which was called Design My Night, which they exited for over $30 million. So in the episode, he talks a lot about how they started Design My Night, how they came up with the idea. And I think one of the most interesting parts was where he explains exactly how they sold it and how they negotiated the deal to then sell the business for tens of millions of dollars and exactly how they planned the whole strategy. Um, he also talks about how they're doing things differently now with his second business. We talk about time management, podcasting, and a bunch of other interesting topics. So I hope you're gonna enjoy it. And if you do, leave a review or just send me a message and let me know what you think. Now enjoy the episode. Nick, welcome to the Founders Lounge. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely a pleasure. Nick, you seem like one of the people who's doing a hundred different things and doing that relatively successfully as well, I must say. So I'm, I'm really excited to dive into a bunch of those things that you're doing and the things that you've done in the past. But like, how do you, how do you introduce yourself these days? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think I'd say I go backwards. So co-founder of Trumpet, uh, angel investor and exited founder of Design My Night. So I work backwards from, from now. All right. So then, well, if we start at the beginning in the past, Design My Night, that was your, I think so far, the biggest success in terms of business or financial success. So can you talk a little bit more about it? What was Design My Night and where, where did the idea come from? I think that that's an interesting part. Um, so, yeah, so that was my first, first startup. So I started that when I was 25 um, and the idea actually came from, so I was actually in New York um, with my co-founder, Andrew, who was also my best friend from university. So we met week one at university. Um, he then went off to the corporate world and worked at Accenture. Um, I did marketing at L'Oreal. Um, and we were actually having a holiday in New York. And when we were heading out, uh, we there was a website we saw, which I always forget the name of, and it doesn't exist anymore, but it was about drinks deals in New York. Uh, and obviously we were younger then, so we wanted to find places where we could get cheaper drinks. Um, but also the hotel concierge, when we went out, was like, oh, you know, where are you guys heading out to? And just asked us a bunch of questions, you know, like what type of night, what area? And we, 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 we then actually went to a restaurant in Greenwich Village called Benny's Burritos that do the strongest frozen margaritas. Um, and we both just got really, really drunk without realizing it just sort of caught up on us. Like we fell off our chair, like we were just wasted, to be honest. Um, and that night we came up with Design My Night. So we were thinking, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea to have drinks deals in London and the element of concierge, but on a platform. Um, and we just talked about it very loosely. And then uh, when we got back from holiday, we started really digging into it and then did lots of pivots before even launching the business. But that was like the core start of the idea. 
that's that's a funny that's a great story about how you came up with the idea i actually didn't know that but <laughs> yeah we can't even remember it so that's the problem <laughs> All right, before we continue, I want to take a second to talk about our sponsor. I've always been saying that one of the best ways to learn about business is by working closely with a smart and successful entrepreneur, and this might be your opportunity. Our sponsor is a company called JudgeMe. JudgeMe is a Shopify product review plugin, and they're the number one plugin on Shopify. They're literally, if you look at the Shopify app store, they're in the first spot. They're bootstrapped, and they managed to outcompete other companies that raised hundreds of millions of dollars by just being smarter and building a better product. They were started by PJ, who was also a guest on the Founders Lounge, episode 54, so I recommend you to check it out. They recently moved their headquarters to London and they're looking for smart people to join them. They're looking for product managers, engineers, and they're looking to fill other roles as well. So check out careers.judge.me and see if you find any role that you like and apply. So that's careers.judge.me. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. <laughs> it's one of the what, what there's this saying. It's kind of a joke that goes, what's it like? No good story ever started by somebody eating a salad. And I think it's, that's like a <laughs> that's like a saying about why drinking is good, even though I, I'm not necessarily the biggest supporter. But um, <laughs> I guess in your case, you kind of prove that point. It's like, yeah, well, you go out, you go drunk, you get drunk, and. Um, Ideas you just flow. somehow start a business. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, it's probably not the best thing to put in a business plan, how you how you help <laughs> the business. But yeah, I suppose our ideas were just flowing from that night. Kind of makes sense. I mean, it, it, it makes even more sense for the type of business that it was, right? And so, okay, well, then, then what happened? You said you, you've gone through, you iterated on it quite a bit before it launched. But yeah, how, what the, how does the story continue? Yeah, so uh, when we got back to London, um, sort of Googling what was out there. Like, I'm from London, so I sort of knew where I used to find out where to go out. Um, and the big one that most people know, Time Out, which still exists, but didn't really do digital very well and arguably still doesn't. Um, and there was a few other big sites that just weren't great. So we were like, okay, A, there is potentially an option here. The other thing about drinks deals was luckily a good friend of mine works at Diageo and she still does actually. Um, and I said to her, well, what do you think of this idea? And she said, well, if the revenue you think is advertising, no drinks brand is going to advertise on a website that is about cheap drinking. Um, so if that's your model, it's not going to work. So we were like, oh, okay, that's a bit of a curveball because back in the day, and this was 2010, so a long time ago, um, that was going to be our first idea, build a big website, sell advertising. Um, but then we looked at the market in different verticals. And, and in that time in the UK, you had sites like Compare the Market and um, Go Compare, which were all these sort of price comparison sites for insurance and cars and everything. So we thought, oh, that could be an interesting take for us, but on nightlife. So actually do a price comparison site for going out. So you could pick if you wanted cheap, but also if you wanted expensive. And if you wanted a cocktail bar or a party bar or a pub um, and sort of took a lot of elements from those websites. Um, we also took a lot of inspiration from Airbnb back in the day in terms of like look and feel for like a, a listings website um, and sort of combine those two to come up with the first iteration of Design My Night. So we sort of launched as like the UK's first price comparison site for nightlife. That was sort of our hook. Um, took us about eight months to build. So we worked at our 
businesses. We carried on working at Accenture and L'Oreal. We met up like every weekend. We met up every evening. Um, and on the weekends, we would go around uh, literally with like a one pager printed out, not on like an iPad or anything, and would speak to bar managers and just be like, look, this is what we're building. What do you think? What do you, what would you like in a listing site? Um, what, what, what is timeout not doing that you would like, et cetera, et cetera. And just, just spoke to loads of people. And that's, you know, one of the big bits of advice I give that cost us nothing, just time. So mm-hmm. we just got out there, spoke to our potential customer early on, got loads of email addresses for when we launched, but then also great feedback. Um, and yeah, we then put it live. Um, in the back end of 2010. Interestingly, I, I left L'Oreal and went full time. Andrew stayed at Accenture and we actually split his salary for six months. Um, so that allowed us to have some sort of salary coming in. And then um, he left as well about six months in, so sort of mid-2011. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, that's, a, that's such a great, like how to start something. I think a lot of people expect that, well, you either need to go all or nothing. Um, so, you know, quit your job, work on the idea. But I think that's, I mean, first of all, I see that as quite risky because you, I mean, maybe it's never, never going to work out, right? And without income, well, it depends how risk averse you are. But I think with zero income, you can sometimes also make kind of silly decisions. Um, but I think it's still, that's something that I usually suggest to people as well. It's like, well, just keep your job, but be very clever with your time, right? So you, you continue working, so you, you work on your idea, on your business on in the evenings, on weekends, but you need to cl- be smart with your time, right? You need to say no to a lot of things and that's that's the difficult part. Yeah, I mean, the irony of starting Design My Night was we went out hardly ever. So we, we ran <laughs> what came to be like the UK's biggest nightlife website, but from the age of 25 into our 30s, we probably went out hardly at all. Uh, so that was a big <laughs> irony. Everyone thought we were just going out all the time, but unfortunately we weren't. <laughs> Wasn't quite the case. Yeah, that's, it, you have to cut all those kind of things, right? It's like, I guess you can't have it all, I suppose. Um, and so, yes, well then eventually, as you said, that became the UK's biggest um, party website, or how did you call it? So nightlife, so yeah, um, nightlife site, yeah, yeah. We grew that to God, when we exited, we were getting about eight million units a month. Um, at one point, one in six Londoners were using it every month. Um, oh, wow. it, it, it obviously ex- expanded beyond nightlife. So we we did lots of events and uh, daytime parties and brunch obviously became very popular in 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 the uk so brunch parties and bottomless brunch and um it sort of expanded out massively we we halfway through we pivoted to software as well so that was a big a big shift Uh in the business um so we yeah pivoted from a media business into a software business um and that was about two and a half years in um and we did uh, reservation software, uh, we uh-huh. did ticketing software um, and vouchering software. So we, we, we spoke to a lot of our partners and at that time it was in the bar scene and they said, well, it'd be great if you built like an open table, but for bars, because open table is very much for restaurants and bars run very differently. If you think how a bar operates, 
the seating is a lot more flexible. There's seating and standing. There's deposits. There's guest list. Um, so it's a lot more complicated than a restaurant, which is table of two, table of four, table of six. So the software can be a lot more simple. Um, so when people were telling us that, I think that was one of the best decisions we made. It was a huge shift in our business that we were like, okay, actually, let's let's keep the B two C arm, but let's move pretty in a big way into software. Um, so we had to obviously hire more dev, customer success, account management. We cut back on our editorial team um, and yeah, built a ticketing and the reservation software at the same time. Um, and yeah, when we exited, we had about 15,000 SaaS customers um, as well as the, the B2C arm. So it was the, the best decision we ever made. So was that the major part of your revenue then in the end? Yeah, so um, definitely became more of a, a software business. It was MRR, ARR, um, so more predictable revenue, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, probably two thirds of the business then ended up being software. Uh, we, could, we obviously monetized the website, um, but that's something I say to a lot of, uh, you can imagine I get a lot of founders that come to me now wanting to build the next Design My Night or you know this an activity website or whatever. Um, and, and the reality is it's very, very tough to monetize at scale with just like a listings platform. Um, so if you can build a marketplace that is uh, SaaS enabled on one side, um, and then obviously you've got all the, all the users on the other, that's where you can sort of really build a business at scale. And obviously at acquisition, a software company is a lot more valuable than a, a media company. Mm -hmm. Was it difficult to make that pivot? Because one thing I hear about is, I mean, a SaaS company, as you were, you were saying, it's essentially, it's a tech company, right? So you need mm -hmm. to have very different skills. So the way how you run it, uh, I guess just the day-to-day -day things that you need to be doing are very, very different. The business model is very different from media company. Yeah, total shift. Um, and it, it wasn't a difficult decision. I think Andrew and I were quite aware that after like two and a half years, to get where, to, to get the exit we wanted, we didn't think we would get that with Design My Night just as a B2C company. So I think we were already looking at different opportunities. And then when we had a few of our clients, our bar clients tell us about this opportunity, we were like, okay, well, there must be something in this. We probably did like a month quick due diligence on the idea. Um, so spoke to other partners in the industry, spoke to pubs, uh, spoke to bars, um, and said, look, this, this is now what we're thinking of doing. What do you think? Do you, do you want to come on the journey with us? Do you want to help us um, scope it out? Um, so again, similar to when we started the B2C platform, we were just speaking to our customers loads and sort of got them on the journey with us. And then when we launched, mm -hmm. we had quite a lot of customers that had been on the journey with us, so wanted to use the software. So mm -hmm. that sort of gave us a bit more confidence. Okay, I see. And so you said something interesting before. You said to get the exit that we wanted. Was that, do you have a certain goal in mind? Was there like an exit strategy that you had from the beginning? How did you think about that? Yeah, not right at the start. So right at the start, we were young. We just wanted to build a business. Just, you know, to th throw yourself into it. Back in 2010, there was a lot less information about being a founder. It wasn't as cool to be a founder um, back then. So it was sort of throwing ourselves into the dark of just realizing that we didn't want to be in corporate anymore. Um, but then probably, um, yeah, about three years in, 
we probably started thinking, okay, what what do we actually want from this? Like we we know we're not going to run this forever. We don't want to run this forever. Um, we were growing a very profitable business, so uh, it was spitting out cash if we did want to stay and just take dividends from the business. Um, but as the software started to kick in, then we were like, okay, we've got something here. It can scale. We can get the revenue up quickly. We can keep our EBITDA margins up as well with software. Um, and yeah, we actually sat down and had a, just a very open discussion about how much money uh, we would want to take from the business. And we obviously looked at our equity. We then looked at similar acquisitions in hospitality to come up with a rough sort of multiple. Um, and we actually modeled out probably for the next three years uh, what revenue and EBIT we needed to get to to then have the potential to sell for the value that we wanted. And we mm-hmm. we charted that out and uh, we, we checked in on that sort of every quarter uh, Andrew and I, and we're like, okay, where are we on our sort of exit chart? Um, obviously, you don't know that someone's going to want to buy you, but we knew that we would be in a very good position if we hit those numbers that we were modeling. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then, so at some point, you also raised a little bit of funding, right? So as you, as you said before, the company was, was very profitable, was a really good business. Did you raise funding when you pivoted towards SaaS or was that for a different reason? So we only ever raised half a million, so from six angel investors. Um, so we raised 250,000 from the six angel investors the year before software. Um, and then that year we discovered the idea for software and they put another 250 in to sort of help fuel the software business. Um, and interestingly, on our exit dinner, when the, the, the angels took us out for dinner, um, they put up our original business proposal um, for the first round of funding on the screen. Uh, and it, it was obviously awful. Um, and there was no, no mention of software, obviously. And they just said, we knew that that business you were pitching us wasn't going to be the business. But we could also see that you two were so ingrained in hospitality and you'd really were close to your customers so they said, we just knew you two would land on something that your customers would want. And that's what we were betting on, not the original idea that you pitched us. Interesting. Okay. That is very cool. Well, let's talk about the exit a little bit. So what is so he, you exited after, was it seven years? Did you say, or more? Yeah. So it was seven years. We had a two year earn out after, um, so. It was five years uh, since we took the sort of round of funding. Um, and again, that's what we modeled. So we said to our investors, we, we want to exit in five years. Uh, this is where we want to be in five years. It was about four and a bit years into it where Andrew and I looked at the model and said, okay, well, maybe at the end of this year, we're going to be where we want to be. Um, so let's start scoping out an exit. Um, so it wasn't how you read in TechCrunch, like people, we weren't flooded with random offers and uh, Google wanting to throw money at us. We went down like the formal route. So we hired a broker um, and we, it was a seven month process uh, with the broker. Um, the first part was um, putting together our IM, which is like it's your um, sales deck, um, but like a hundred slides. 
Um, so you work very closely with your broker. They come in and understand your business. They work on your financial model with you and basically become like another founder for like those few months. It's really intense. And they're just in there asking you loads of questions, looking at all your financials. Design by Night was also quite complicated. So you had your B2C revenue, you had your reservations revenue, our ticket revenue was a clip of uh, all the money that was bought on tickets. So it wasn't a, a SaaS fee. So we had like three or four different revenue lines and different models. Um, so it's quite complicated for them to get their head around. And then once you've got your sales deck, um, you put together a teaser of that deck, just like a few pages. Um, and the first process is they go out to people they think would be interested, but don't mention that it's you that's up for sale. Um, so say, look, we've got this company that's in the hospitality business. This is what they do. This is their financials. Are you interested to learn more? If they are, you sign NDAs and then give them the full deck. Um, we got a few nibbles off that. Um, and then he said, okay, let's run the full process now. So that was going out to all the ones you would imagine. So like Open Table, Book a Table, Eventbrite, TripAdvisor. So all of those. But then obviously the job of a broker is to bring in loads of people we never heard of. So speaking to quite a few people in Asia, speaking to private equity, um, and you again show a bit of a bigger teaser deck to them, which talks about Design My Night as the business. If they're interested, they sign an NDA. You then give them the big deck. If you're then, in, if they're then interested in that, you not normally jump on a call with their head of M and A. Um, if that goes well, you'll normally have another call with the head of M and A and someone within the business. If that went well, you'd normally have a call with the head of M and A and then probably like the, the, the CEO of the business. Um, and then it comes to offer stage. So obviously that all takes a lot of time. Like, so you're doing outreach to hundreds of people. Uh, you're hopefully having lots of calls and then you just whittle it down as you go. Um, and the final stage for us, we had three offers pretty much. Um, and yeah, it, you then have to not get greedy, uh, which was something our broker said to us. Uh, so, you know, he was like, don't, don't throw away a deal because of greed. So. The, the acquirer that we went with in the UK, actually, they're a unicorn in the UK. Um, we turned down their offer three times. Um, and then they came back and said that this is our, this is literally our final offer. Take it or leave it. Um, at the same time, we were negotiating with two other, uh, one in Asia and one in Europe. Um, but these guys, uh, are sort of acquisition, professionals so their their business acquires a lot so they were like we can get the deal done quickly we'll do light due diligence Mm -hmm. we've got the cash ready to go because when you sign exclusivity on a deal it could then take months to close and anything Mm -hmm. can still go wrong and our broker said until you've got the money in the bank it's not done um Mm -hmm. so there was one company for example an american one that was super interested we got very far and then they were going to ipo the next year um, and they had to halt all M&A because of the IPO. So suddenly that deal was dead. Um, so he said, look, these guys are English. They're ready to go. You know, we've done deals with them before. Um, the money is more than you wanted previously. So, you know, get the deal done, basically. So we agreed to do the deal with them. And then from there, it took about a month, maybe three weeks of due diligence um, and, then, and then closing the deal. It actually nearly fell through on the last day, the, the, the day that we were signing 
the deal. Um, but we got it over the line in the end. What happened? <laughs> um, there was a, a very long story short. There was a, so we got off, we were meant to go into their lawyer's office about nine a.m. to sign. Um, we uh, said to our team, we told them the night before what was happening that we were exiting, uh, and we booked a bar for all of us to uh, celebrate together that at like five o'clock that evening. Um, and then we got a phone call from our lawyer at about half eight eight in the morning um, saying there's a new EU payment law that has come out. What do you know about it? Um, and we, we were putting through hundreds of millions of pounds in terms of payments, people buying tickets and deposits. Mm. So we were also a bit of a fintech behind the scenes. Um, we'd never heard of this law. So we were like, <laughs> I actually have no idea about it. And they were like, the acquirer wants to know what your strategy is for it. So we were like, well, we don't even know what it is. Um, so we spoke to Stripe. So Stripe powered all of our payments. We we're actually one of their early UK customers. So we were very close to the team at Stripe. We had a, a great relationship with them. Um, and our account manager, we phoned and we couldn't tell him that we were being acquired, but we were like, all of our investors, we said, want to know about this EU law that's coming out. Um, they're going to ask you questions about it. Just answer what you know. He said, well, that's great, but I'm on the way to hospital because my wife's giving birth. Uh, so we were like, okay. Um, so we were like, okay, well, that is more important. Um, but the trooper that he is, he like messaged us in the afternoon and was like, I can jump on the call now if you want. Um, and we didn't ask him to do that. Um, so he jumped on this call. Uh, we just had to stay silent and let the acquirers just ask all the questions, even though he thought it was our investors. Uh, put the phone down, just had to wait. And then probably at about five o'clock, we got a phone call from our lawyer saying, it's fine, they're going to go ahead and go to the deal. So we went to their lawyer's office in the city and we didn't sign until about 8 p.m. Um, so then we joined our team who were already very drunk and had drunk all the champagne we pre-bought um, when we walked into the bar. Um, but yeah, so we got to the bar about half nine and we we're meant to be there about five. Um, but yes, it got through in the end, but it was a very stressful day. Oh, wow. Okay. That is, <laughs> that was, I can imagine that was an intense day <laughs> that you had. <laughs> But yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, I've heard maybe not similar stories, but I've often heard it like it's not until the money, until the transaction happens, it's, you don't know that it's done and there could still some, you know, something could come in between and you just need to be super careful until the very end. Um, but that is very interesting. That's, yeah, as you said, that's a, I suppose, a slightly different story from what I've usually heard about exits when it's often the acquirers who reach out, but I suppose. Um, is it, I suppose that's a good strategy. Well, would you say it's a good idea to have, so you had three potential acquirers in the end, right? Is there a little bit of a, like a bit of a bidding war there? You know, you have, you can use that for negotiation. Yeah. Um, so obviously you're not mentioning who the others are. Um, mm -hmm. I think they, the, the, the good thing as well at that point is that they're all second guessing who it is. So mm -hmm. I, I, I can't speak for our acquirer, but I would guess that they're sat there thinking, okay, well, we're up against booking.com or we're up against TripAdvisor who obviously have very deep pockets. Um, mm -hmm. 
how can we sweeten the deal that they come to us? Um, so, and then if you've got booking.com on the other side, uh, and it wasn't the Leicester sales, booking.com on the other side, they might be thinking, oh, it could be TripAdvisor. We don't want them to get this. So what can we do? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. bidding a war is part of it, but obviously they all will have their ceiling on how much they're willing to pay. Um, but there's other ways you can sweeten the deal in terms of how much you get up front, how much is tied into the earn out. Um, your earn out can be six months, one year, two year, three year, four year, five year. Um, you can have different types of targets on your earn out. Um, so I think our acquirers sweeten the deal. They, they increase their price, but they sweeten the deal on the earn out for us to make it quite an attractive mm-hmm. earn out. Um, so yeah, that fear of who else was bidding, um, definitely helps you in the end. Mm-hmm. And I've heard often that it's really, really, really one of the key parts is to have a good broker and a good lawyer because that's because especially if, you, if it's your first exit, you don't really know what you're doing. Right. So all the things that you were talking about now, it's like, well, I don't know what to be careful about. I don't know what else I can, you know, what can I mess up, how to negotiate this whole thing. Right. I imagine that that's incredibly helpful when you have somebody, somebody who's an expert helping you. Yeah. I mean, def- the broker, definitely. I mean, they got the deal done. Um, but yeah, lawyer, we had a really good lawyer and it, it was just pivotal because obviously the, the sales agreement is it's just huge document that's obviously all legal language. Um, and I don't think I ever read the whole thing. Like It was just pointless. So you're just putting your faith mm. in the lawyer who's on your side and fighting and that also has to be reasonable that, you know, that will say, look, the, these are the... 15 points that I'm not happy with. If you want to get this deal done, let's try and win 10 of them and let's pick the five mm-hmm. that you're happy to, to let slide. Um, so yeah, you're really putting your faith in, in them. And again, yeah, we had a really good legal team um, that, that fought for everything we wanted to fight for. Even up to the last minute, which is classic lawyers, like when we they said the deal was ready to be signed and we went to the lawyer's office of the acquirer, we had a whole floor to ourselves. And one room was the acquirer. We were in another room and the lawyers were still fighting over stuff. So we were like, can we just sign this bloody deal now? And they were like, oh, there's still a few points we're arguing over. So the lawyers were going back and forth between the rooms, still negotiating right at the end, like trying to earn more money probably. Um, So like right until the end, uh, the lawyers were still fighting it out. But yeah, they put in some really good clauses for us. Um, that we just would never have thought of, which actually were fundamental when we were doing our own house. Sounds almost like a movie scene when you're explaining (laughs) how it was. (laughs) Yeah, if anyone wants to do a Netflix series on on that, (laughs) I'm open to offers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think this was a good teaser. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We didn't mention... How much did you exit for? I think it's a public number, right? Or at least approximately. Yeah, approximately 30 to $40 million. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty good. That's that's quite a life-changing amount of money. Um, so what happened then? Did you start... So after that, you, your next business then was Trumpet. Um, did you start it right after or how did that go? So we after our earn out, so that finished um, in January 2020. Um, so... We fully exited, nothing to do with Design My Night anymore. Um, But then obviously COVID hit. So I think um, 
Andrew and I are expecting with our other halves uh, to, you know, just go out and enjoy, enjoy a year off, go traveling, uh, chill out. Uh, it's been a very intense sort of seven, eight, nine years. Um, but we couldn't, so we were stuck at home basically. Um, so I think that forced. So what else it... to do than what else to do than starting a startup, right? Yeah, well, exactly. We were like, well, what, what do we do? So we did angel investing. So we angel invested since the initial exit, um, and we're now actually in about fifty-seven startups as angel investors. Oh, wow. So we we love doing that. Um, but that you know, angel investing is great, but it it only scratches part of the itch uh you know you're not mm. fully involved you're only as involved as the founders want you to be um and you know probably only 10 percent, 15 percent of our investments do they really want us involved and asking us lots of questions the rest you know you get your monthly or quarterly update and try and help when you can but you don't really feel like you're changing the needle for them um you know we're still young we're still young in the, in the grand scheme of things so we were like you know, we don't just want to sit on the beach all day. Uh, you know, what, what do we love doing? And we, sad or not, we love building businesses. Like, you know, that's, that's what gets us up in the morning. Um, so we just started carefully just thinking, okay, let's, if we go again, um, we're going to do it differently. Uh, so we'll bring in a third founder to help us and actually probably be the CEO. Um, and we can focus on the things we love doing. Um, when we sold DMN, there was about 110, 100 people. Um, and actually, we never had HR. Uh, so we just found that very stressful, like managing a team, managing the office. It was obviously pre-COVID, so we had an office where everyone went to. Um, it, just, it just got very stressful by the end of it. So, you know, I love marketing. I love brand. I love sales. Andrew loves product and data. Um, so we were like, if we can bring in a founder, third founder to sort of run the day to day, we focus on what we love. Um, that feels like something that we'd be excited about. Um, we also, for the next idea, we're like, it has to be instantly global. It has to be scalable. Um, it has to be product led growth. Um, so we had to tick all of these boxes as well. So we were ideating loads of different ideas. Um, and then. We landed on Trumpet, uh, which, again, we did a pre-pivot. So it was originally going to be called Loop. Um, and it was actually going to be for founders raising investment. Um, so that the core product of Trumpet is to spin up um, hyper-personalized and engaging microsites in minutes. Uh -huh. so almost like a Canva and Squarespace for salespeople. Um, but we thought, oh how do you pitch for investment a PDF? Like how dull is that? Um, so we were like, if you could spin up these engaging mini sites with video content, photos, imagery, text, audio, um, you could personalize it to each VC that you're reaching out to. Uh, we're like, that could be pretty cool. Um, and then you could use this mini site to keep your investors updated on your progress. Thus loop, keep them in the loop. Um, mm. but then we looked at the market and we were like, it's not actually a huge market. Um, obviously we're in this bubble, so we only see founders and startups, yeah. but in the grand scheme of things, it's quite a small bubble. Um, and then we thought, okay, well, where else could you use a tool like this? 
and it just clicked. We were like, sales, like this is perfect for sales because sales, you send out PDFs, PowerPoints, back and forward with the customer with like 80 emails. It's just a horrible process to get deals done. Um, so we thought, okay, let's pivot to, to sales, which is what we did. We then found Rory, who is our third co-founder, who was the European sales leader, Hotjar. Um, so he was like a sales expert, uh, had always wanted to be a founder as well. Um, so we knew him previously. Um, so we sort of formed a three and then started, yeah, ideating, building out the product. We spoke to 150 salespeople um, before we started building the product, uh, got all of their feedback. Again, similar to what we did at Design My Night. Um, and then we had this document with like great ideas in, um, great uh, obstacles that we had to overcome. Um, and then we put all of that feedback into the first iteration of the product. I want to go back to one thing that you mentioned before. So on this podcast, we used to talk a lot about ideas. Nowadays, a little bit less so, but you mentioned that you were ideating on a lot of different things when you were thinking about your next business, right? Can you talk a little bit more about that? What was that ideation process like? So I think ideation falls into two brackets for me. I think one, you need to be sort of naturally curious. So I think you need to be that type of person. So whenever I'm Whenever I'm out and about, I'm always looking and thinking how things can be done better or because I love marketing. Whenever I see like a billboard, I'll always think, what what would I put on that billboard? What strap line would I have put up there? So I'm, I'm just constantly challenging things. And I think the best way to come up with ideas is not to sit in a room and think I need to come up with an idea. It's just thinking about all the things you interact with on a day, day to day whether it's yourself, your family, your loved ones, all the things we do um, based on experience and just think how it can be done better. Um, so, you know, when we pivoted Loop to Trumpet, we thought back to Design My Night and just thought, how do we do sales at Design My Night? Really archaic and badly, maybe that can be done better. Um, and, and one big thing we did, that the, so the process of ideation for us is... We come up with the idea. One big thing I say to founders is do not then come up with a name. Do not start building the brand because that's where you get excited and you haven't really proved whether it's a good idea. The minute you've got a brand and a name, you're convincing yourself that it's a really good idea. So mm -hmm. the first thing we do is we do a one pager um, of the idea. So it's what's the problem? How are we going to solve it? What's the market? And what would the first iteration of the product look like? literally in one page, mm -hmm. um, we would then speak to as many people as possible. So we would reach out to people on LinkedIn, reach out to our network and go like, this is what, this is what we're planning on doing. What do you think? So that's then we found 150 salespeople. Um, and I always say, try and do everything you can to dissuade yourself that it's a good mm -hmm. idea. All, most founders, especially young founders, will do the opposite. They'll do everything mm -hmm. they can to mm -hmm. prove it's a good idea. And if you yeah. go in with that mentality, you're then going to miss stuff. You're not going to look at your competitors properly. You're not going to listen to the negative feedback. You'll just brush it off. So if you flip your mindset of, okay, my job now is to tell myself that this is an awful idea. Let's speak to as many people as I can. 
to see if they can tell me why it won't work. Let me look at all the potential competitors and sign up to their products and have a proper good look and see how well funded they are. Um, it's a really deep dive. And this takes like three months for us um, of real like deep dive into the sector. We had three or four other ideas that we were running at Parallel. Um, and, you know, that deep dive showed us that either the idea wasn't a good idea or we weren't the right founders to actually bring that to market. Um, and Trumpet was just the one that was just perfect. It ticked all of our boxes. Um, so that's sort of the process of, of yeah, how, how we ideate and then think, yes, we're going we're gonna to do something. And how much did your idea of the product change while you were having all these conversations with salespeople or do, doing those interviews? Because it's obviously you can learn a lot from the industry and I think that's a really good idea. One, one approach that people often take also is just they, you know, they have their initial idea and then they launch a landing page and see kind of how, how the market reacts, right? Um, so, but obviously, as you said, if you, if you talk to a lot of potential customers, your idea might change, the way how you sell it, if nothing else might change, the language you used to sell it can change quite a bit. So I'm wondering what was your experience with that? Yeah, I'm definitely in the, the, the latter camp. So maybe I'm a bit more old school, but you know, when you read all these like Y Combinator blogs and you listen to podcasts of like, especially like American founders that, you know, have had an exit or something. Yeah, they'll very much be like, yeah, just put it out there, man, and get the feedback. But for me, you know, if you put out a landing page, you've then got to promote that landing page. Does that landing page tell you much about the product because you haven't actually formulated it? Then also, if you're going to start like maybe building a wait list of that landing page, but you know you could be six months out from having a product, you can't have people sat on a wait list for six months. Um, mm. So I'm a lot more... I'm, I'm happy to talk about the idea. So I think that's another mistake founders make is they're worried people are going to steal the idea. So I'm the opposite. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm not worried about that. I'm going to speak to as many people as I can, but I want to give them a bit more depth than just a landing page. Um, mm -hmm. So that is our one pager. that's still not loads, but it, it's got information about it. And then, as you said, um, we actually built a notion board and tagged everything as positive, negative um, idea. Um, and like you said, you're then, when you just speak to someone for 15 minutes, you're just testing little tidbits of language, what things really excite you about the product, what things that we thought excited people didn't excite people. And you just start to get, it's almost like having an MVP without having the product. Um, and I think the, the richness of feedback we gathered from that, um, both in terms of our focus for the MVP and the language we were going to use really, really helped shape what it became. Like the, the, the framework of the idea of these hyper-personalized sales mini sites created in minutes stayed the same, but the more in-depth feature base and the language definitely changed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. And what was your launch strategy there? Because I saw on your website, it says that uh, over 2,500 people our company signed up for for your beta launch right which is which is pretty good yeah <laughs> yeah um so yeah so so we spent eight months building the product so this was not a quick 
product. Uh, again, we sort of ignored the whole lean startup, put something out you're not proud of. We actually, because Andrew and I could fund the, the, the early part, mm-hmm. almost as like pre-seed investors. Um, we were like, no, we're going to go to a proper product agency who have built high quality products. We're going to get brand work done. Um, we we want to come out with almost like a series A product as our MVP. Um, so that was our strategy at the start. Um, probably about four months out from launch, that's when we put our landing page live um, and sort of announced to the world what we were building. Um, fortunately, I built up a very good network on LinkedIn. So since exiting Design My Night, I built up a, a big network of founders and business people um, and it was basically just going out to our network saying this is what we're building we had the 150 salespeople. we could email all of them and tell them mm-hmm. to tell people um, and you sign up for a wait list we then had like a, a viral loop product built into our wait list so we, we had a sequence of emails set up um, to keep people engaged and that sequence of emails wasn't just about trumpet it was about like sales collateral so we were like, you know, here's great podcasts you should listen to. Here's great videos you should watch. Um, so it's sort of educating, building a mini community without building an actual community. Uh, we would then tease the product. So as and when we had screenshots and stuff, we started to tease the product. And the viral loop within the email was, um, if you share your referral link, you'll move up the list. Um, and you'll get the product for free if you refer 10 or more people. And actually about 20%, 22% of our wait list came from referrals. So uh, it did really, really work. Um, and we just built up the excitement. Like we built up the hype, built up the excitement. Um, by the time we launched, we had 3,000 on the wait list. Um, so that, that was the way we sort of built the FOMO. Um, for, for what we were building. It helps because we were exited founders. So I think people were more interesting, yeah. interested to see what we were building next. But um, yeah, there's, there's tons of blogs out there, how to do that. So we just studied those, you know, loads of companies have done this FOMO wait list. Um, you know, uh, Thingy were probably the best, uh, what, what were they called? Uh, the audio, what's it called? that audio tool where you do rooms uh which doesn't ex- i don't know if it exists anymore um god my mind's gone blank uh, it was all backed by vcs and oh duh, yeah and you, you went into did you did audio rooms uh, and then yeah, twitter yeah, copied yeah. it um the fact we can't clubhouse. remember it now clubhouse that's it clubhouse, yeah. so i think you, they did it superbly unfortunately uh, the end yeah, product yeah. no one actually wanted um but you know, there's blogs about how they did it, how Slack did it. So we just read up. Uh, we didn't really reinvent the wheel uh-huh. mm-hmm. and use FOMO and viral loops to, to, to get it going. I see. All right. Um, one of the things that you do as well is you have a podcast, right? As well, mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. from what I understand, a pretty successful podcast in terms of its ranking. It was, a, it was or it is a top five business podcast globally. It was, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I'm on series five. It's more of a hobby that, so that's more of like a labor of love. Um, so I'm not doing it to like monetize it or anything. Um, it's called Pitch Deck. Um, and it's, it, it's original format was like Dragon's Den or Shark Tank. 
Um, so we would invite uh, a pre-seed founder to come and pitch, audio only. Um, and then I would have a guest angel or a guest early stage VC. Uh, we would quiz the founder live. Um, so it's great for founders to hear how investors think, what questions we ask. Um, we have a live Q&A back and forth with the founder. And then the final part of the podcast, the founder leaves. And myself and the investor chat honestly about what we think, uh, whether we liked it, whether we didn't, where they could improve. Um, so we did that for four series. Um, it's quite labor intensive to, to build a podcast like that because you need all the different people uh, who are all comfortable speaking on a podcast as well. Um, so that, that went really well. And then the fifth series, I've actually just done 15 minutes. So they, they were an hour long. So this is like 15 minute snapshots with early stage investors. Um, so I interview like footballers that invest. I interview angel investors, uh, early stage VCs, just a 15 minute chat on like, what do you look for in a pitch deck? What do you look for in an early founder? What do you look for on that first 30 minute phone call? Um, and I just really wanted founders to be able to take like, you know, two or three bits of information from each 15 minute podcast that they could then hopefully go on and use. And it also shows you how different, different investors think. So there's no right answer either when pitching investors. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, that's the new series, series five. We've got about 10 episodes in on that at the moment. Right. Okay. It's, I, it's interesting. So. Obviously, you had a format that was quite interesting, quite unique, right? A bit different from a typical podcast. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that that was a major part that made it successful in the beginning? Well, plus you had a you had a good, as you said, you had a good personal brand, good audience as well that you could launch to. It's um, it's interesting. So when I launched this podcast, the one that we're on right now, right? So that was also about two years ago, and we launched it in Slovenia first. So that's where I'm originally from, and we started together with a friend of mine. And we had no launch strategy or anything. We were just like, to be honest, I never thought it was even going to get published. I said, look, yeah, we had this idea where, yeah, let's record a few episodes. Let's see how it's going to be. It's like, yeah, probably it's not going to be interesting enough. We're never going to publish it. But we did decide to publish it. And we had like three episodes recorded when we published it. And we had no expectations. We didn't even look at the rankings until a friend messaged us. And he was like, you guys are number one podcast in Slovenia. I'm like, where are what? How is that even possible? <laughs> and so obviously that in the beginning, I guess, well, we, there was a little bit of a hype because we have a little bit of network. Um, I don't think we have as much as you, but a little bit. And then Slovenia is small, so it's not that competitive. And then I suppose when you launch, the algorithm gives you a little bit of a boost to get that initial audience. Um, and then that helped that build a little bit of hype. So we kept being top three in the business category for quite a while, uh, for the first year or so. And then obviously when I switched to English, everything changed, right? Because it's about 10,000 times more competitive. So <laughs> you're competing against all the best podcasts in the world. And it's a, it's a whole different game. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was the story with, with this podcast. And now it's just kind of, I guess, still searching for a, um, I don't know, certain format that's maybe going to be different or unique. But personally, I just do it because I enjoy doing it. It's kind of like you said as well. It's, it's a bit of a hobby. It's something fun. It's something just to talk to interesting people and hopefully deliver some value um, to others in the world as well. 
Um, but yeah, well, that was a little bit of my my story on on this podcast. Um, but yeah, I guess in your case, I would say that format was probably one of the key parts, right? It just makes it different, interesting. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was actually. I listened to uh, a very well-known one called Pitch uh, or The Pitch, I think, which was by Gimlet Media, who got bought by Spotify, um, which was similar-ish in America. Um, a lot more. They're a media company, so a lot more polished, and they're in a studio and all of that stuff. Um, but you know, I, I, I love watching Dragons Den, but you know, I also see sort of how unrealistic it is in, in the, for the real world. Um, so I was like, if I can bring together founders who are actually raising money and investors who actually invest in early stage companies, um, and just let that unfold, um, and you know, having proper negotiations or discussions about price. You know, obviously Dragon's Den, they want like 50%. You know, that's not really the real world. So I think it, I thought it was important mm. to show founders what the real world is like. Um, so, yeah, I, people did, you know, really like that format. Um, everything I put out there, I try, I think if, if there is something I want people to take from my content. So whenever I'm on someone else's podcast, when I'm doing my own podcast, if I put out stuff on LinkedIn, I genuinely always think, is there something here that whoever's watching or listening or reading can can take something from it, like just one point or two points? And I think that's the feedback I get, which I love, you know, messages from people just being like, oh, I, I listened to, you know, this this podcast that gave me this idea on how I should pitch. Mm-hmm. And I, I went and raised money or I changed my pitch deck because I listened to how you were speaking with the lady from Sequoia and whatever. Um, so... I think that's in my mindset. I'm like, if I was a founder listening to anything I put out, can I take information from it rather than just like mm. talking about myself mm. or something? So I think if you go in that mindset with anything, um, it can normally get picked up. But look, podcasts are tough. It has to be more a hobby, like unless you want to put like a marketing agency behind it and a PR agency, which I don't. Um, as you said, I just enjoy it. Um, I love the messages that people send me if they're enjoying it um and yeah i just get to build my own network of people that come on the podcast um i've co-invested with people on the podcast um and i didn't know them before they came on the podcast so yeah yeah, as you say it's just a great way to meet people and stay in touch with people yeah exactly exactly um okay so podcast and you're investing and you have a startup and you're doing, I think, some mentoring and some other things on the side. How's you, how do you manage your time? How, yeah, I guess, how do you manage your time? How do you divide your time between different things? Um, I think I am a lot more focused in the work I do now. So I think when I sit down to do work, I am very tunnel vision on what I need to get done. So whereas before something might take me an hour wasn't that focused might now take me 20 minutes um so i you know i try and really divide my time up in the day um i have to-do lists uh of Mm -hmm. uh something i do i've done since design my night so i've got like a a a bigger to-do list um but then every day i write down three or four things i have to get done today Uh um that are that are also doable 
you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to put five big strategy things, um, but just five things to come off my to-do list that I know I can get done today. Uh, and whatever happens, I will make sure I get those done. Um, so that really helps focus me. Um, also saying no more. So obviously I get asked all the time to go for coffee or jump on a 15 minute phone call or etc. Um, so I'm a lot more precious with my time now, um, which is tough. I don't like saying no to people, but you know, I'll always say to someone if they come for advice, you know, rather than meeting for a coffee, why don't you message me, you know, mm. the two burning questions you've got and I will reply. It might, you know, I might reply in a week or two weeks or tomorrow, but I will get back to you. And that what I hate doing is opening up my diary and having loads of meetings. Um, and I did get to a stage early on where I was sort of offering myself out too much on phone calls and coffees and um, networking events. And I'd just look at my diary and it would just be full of meetings. And now I try and do all of that async. So if anyone wants advice or help, I'm just like, drop me a voice note. And if I'm walking to the gym, I'll voice note you back. Or if I go for a walk, you know, I'll look at the three voice notes I need to send. So it's sort of on my time rather than booking time out in my diary. Um, so that re- that really works for me as well. Um, and just putting great people around you. So like we said with Trumpet, you know, we've got Rory, who is amazing. Um, uh, he allows me to focus on the stuff that I love and that I'm good at with Trumpet. Um, so I don't get bogged down in the other stuff, which will benefit Trumpet in the long run. Um, so yeah, but then also know your limits. Like don't just keep taking on stuff. Um, you know, you've got to make time for yourself uh, and make sure you're enjoying it. The minute I stop enjoying mm. what I'm doing, then I'll stop doing it. When it comes to focus on, you know, the, the task at hand, is that something, do you have some kind of, I think a lot of us struggle with that today more than ever. There are so many distractions. The world is just full of notifications and everything is built for short-term attention spans, right? I recently deleted all social media apps from my phone because I realized I was just, I just started spending too much time on Twitter. Twitter is for me, is that's, that's my drug of choice because mm-hmm. it feels useful. It's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of learning. I'm like following yeah. interesting people. <laughs> but then when you spend an hour a day or more on the app, you're like, well, it's probably not as beneficial <laughs> as it seems in the moment. Um, so I always try to just... Um, I suppose tailor my environment to make it more productive for myself. I know some people just put their, put their phone on, on in flight mode. Even um, is do you just use your discipline, or is, is, do you have other tactics to actually focus on tasks at hand? Yeah. So actually, the, the only real social media I use is LinkedIn. Um, so mm-hmm. I've got Twitter for my podcast, but I don't really use it that much. Um, uh, I don't have Instagram. Um, so I'm not really a huge social media person and I use LinkedIn, you know, less, less about ego and self and more because I know it helps everything I'm doing. Um, so I haven't really got that dopamine drug of constantly looking at notifications on LinkedIn because I think LinkedIn's a bit different to Instagram where, you know, they're obviously liking you because it's personal or to mm-hmm. a photo that you put up or something. Um, so I sort of banish all of that from my life anyway, which is great. Um, on my phone, I, the only notification I have is WhatsApp. So Uh I don't have any other notifications on my phone. Um, 
And what that does is it allows me to pick the times that I'm going to look at it. So if, if I'm out and about, for example, I'll be like, okay, I'll, I'll hop into my email now because I've got half an hour rather than buzzing between meetings and emails flooding onto my phone. It's like nothing I do is urgent. I'm not a surgeon. I'm not saving anyone's life. So I think if you get into that mindset, um, that if it takes half an hour to reply or two hours to reply, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme mm. of things. So, um, so yeah, I'm quite disciplined on that. Uh, I turn off all notifications on my laptop. So I don't have WhatsApp notifications on my laptop. I don't have email notifications on my laptop. So the window I'm in is the window I'm in until um, I, I move. I'm also quite a big believer in short bursts. So like 20 minutes of focused work rather than sitting down for an hour. I feel like uh -huh. a 20 minute burst of full attention and get you know one thing off your to-do list or get through your inbox or whatever then go and make a cup of coffee or go for a walk or, or look at your social media for like 20 minutes and sort of reset and then go again. Mm -hmm. I feel like that works quite nicely rather than saying, okay, I'm going to sit in my laptop for two hours and get stuff done. I don't think our brains are wired to sit down and focus for two hours. So yeah, I tend to work in like short, sharp bursts. Um, and I sort of thrive a bit on chaos. Like I'm the, the way my brain works. So I'm just whether I'm analyzing stuff or in communication with people or solving a problem that keeps me energized versus having nothing to think about. So actually, rather than making me stressed, that actually gives me energy to, to just keep going. Um, but then uh, you've got to make time to then turn off. So, you know, when, when I'm in social time, I am off uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not looking at emails or Slack or anything like that. That's, it's funny you mentioned that. I can really relate to that. I realize that sometimes if I have nothing very urgent on my to-do, I don't know. That's probably not a good thing, but it just feels like something's missing, something's wrong. I just don't have that <laughs> urgency to, like, get things done. I, I, I feel like I just need to have always a few things that are sort of pressing that I you know, just need to be working on. And then that, that kind of keeps me going. And that's where to-do lists are good. Cause you look at your to-do yeah. list, even if they're not exactly. urgent, but you're like, okay, I need to get these five things done yeah. today. Um, and that sort of focuses your attention. Exactly. And it doesn't necessarily, or at least for me, I wouldn't say it's in a stressful way. It's just like, oh, okay. I've got these things that I need to do today. So let's go, let's go and do it. Interesting. I'm, I'm quite convinced that attention span is going to become more and more of a competitive advantage of individuals because it's just getting so much worse. And while at the same time, I think it's so important to actually get work done, right? Because if you're constantly just switching from one thing to the other and getting interrupted, it's very hard to get anything meaningful done. So I think any sort of whether apps or whatever approaches that are going to, that are going to help people to focus and to yeah increase their attention span i i think that that's going to be a popular thing in the future um obviously on the other hand we're always going to have uh apps and especially social media companies and marketers and so on working against it but that's that's the world we live in i think i read somewhere it was while i was at design my nights so we had gmail and we uh we used Slack, but we also had Gchat, 
chatting to people. And I remember walking around the office once and I just saw everyone's, you know, like seven chat windows open on people's laptops. Uh, and it, it could have been for work. So, you know, they were not you know, yeah. just all slacking. Uh, oh, uh, not slacking, slacking in work. <laughs> um, and and I just, I just thought, I just want to look into, is there any like evidence anywhere? And I found it. And I can't ex- remember the exact figure, but it was something like if you have a notification on your laptop, Every time that pings or comes across the screen, you lose 10 minutes thinking time because you, you either click on it or you don't yeah. click on it, but you're thinking about it and then you yeah. lose your train of thought of what you were doing. Yeah. So it's nuts. So you're like, if, if your laptop is just pinging constantly, you're actually just never focusing on the job you're trying to do. Um, yeah. And that's why when I see people's laptops or phones that are just like full of notifications, I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, it's just not mm. helping you at all. So that, yeah, the, the, the biggest way you can do it, and it seems so obvious, is just to clear all of that away. Do your focus work and then dive into Slack and social media and emails on your terms. Yeah. One thing I've done about a year ago I wrote about it a little bit on Twitter as this experiment where I started tracking pretty much every minute of my day. And I would, I had a notification every 15 minutes to track my time. And so when, so obviously that was an interruption, but it was an yeah. interruption for the sake of the experiment, right? So the only thing I had to do when the notification went off, I, I just wrote, I had a spreadsheet and I would write what I was doing for the last 15 minutes. And it was First of all, eye-opening when I looked at it at the end of the day or at the end of the week. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. I spent like way less time on this one project that was super important, like way less than I should have. And then I sometimes had chunks of like blocks of two hours when I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, right? Something interrupted me. And then I don't think, I don't know, one thing led to another. And I looked back at my time. I was like, I actually, I didn't track my time for like two hours. And I genuinely don't know what I was doing, or I, you know, I could like, or at least it didn't feel like two hours, right? Yeah. Um, and the second uh, sort of unexpected benefit of that was that I just being way more mindful of my time, uh, mm-hmm. eventually, mm-hmm. because I was at the back of my mind, I was always thinking, I was like, okay, why, what am I actually doing? What am I going to track at the next 15 minute uh, mm-hmm. stop, right? And I think it helped me tremendously. Now I haven't done it in probably a few months, but I think I want to do it every few weeks, perhaps just mm-hmm. do it again, maybe just for a few days to get back into that uh, state of being more mindful where my time is actually going. Cause it's, it's the most important resource that we have, right? You, <laughs> you want your time to go um, where you actually, where it's actually needed or where it's actually impactful. Yeah. And I think it's, I think when you actually are aware and especially social media of like just how much you're just doom scrolling, you're like a robot. Um, as you say, Twitter is probably the worst because it is educational at all, but I do then challenge people on say you're following founders and VCs and there's a long thread or whatever, like you might read that thread, but then are you actually taking it in and learning from it? You're you, not. You're, you are for that second. You're like, oh, that's a good idea. I'll do that. And then yeah. it's on to something else. So it's like, yeah. how much are you taking in? Um, yeah. And look, I don't want to say I, I'm perfect. Like, I definitely waste time. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. If you can just be mindful of that. Um, 
and look, social media is an addiction. Notifications are an addiction. Yeah. Even yeah. Slack and emails, it gives you that. Okay, what's that? It's the the dopamine, isn't it? So it is it is an addiction. So I think if you just cut that out, uh, like for example, I love sugar. Like I don't mm. smoke, uh, I don't drink loads, but I love sugar. And I know that if at home I have got a bag of Haribo, I will eat that bag of Haribo. <laughs> so I just don't buy the bag of Haribo. Um, exactly. <laughs> and it's the same with notifications and social media. Like if you just turn it off uh, and then treat yourself to some sweets every so often, but not having a constant bag of sweets in your house, uh, then... I think you'll find that you'll be a lot more focused in, in the work that you do and a lot more fulfilled um, because mm, yes. yeah, social yeah. media is not great for you, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Yeah, and you can, it's hard to rely just on your discipline or your willpower because it's, it's not perfect and it's not endless and uh, you don't want to, I feel like you don't want to trust yourself <laughs> with yeah, that. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> you can just kind of, yeah, it's tough. It's better just... Uh, adjust your environment so you don't need to rely on on your willpower um a few quick questions before we wrap up um if you're 20 years old again and you want to start a business what do you do um ooh, that's right. i think it's very sort of a la mode at the moment but i think start trying to build up your own personal brand um i think that gives you so much more of a leg up um, in terms of researching for the, the, the business and when you launch it. Um, and, you know, what I say to people on the personal branding front is just be authentic. Don't talk about stuff you don't know. Um, there's always going to be other people in your position. So just talk about what you're doing. So, for example, if you're in a first-time founder leaving corporate worlds, talk about the journey of corporate and leaving corporate, what you learn in corporate, what you're worried about, what you're excited about, take them on the journey. Like, don't pretend that you're this founder that knows everything, trying to give advice. Mm, you know, I see a lot of people giving advice that have never exited a business before or have run a business for 10 minutes and they're suddenly like the know-it-all founder. Um, so, and obviously, as you get more experience, you're going to have more of a bank of stuff to talk about. Um, but there's always going to be people that are interested in your journey. So, so you know, start building your personal brand on Twitter and LinkedIn, um, be authentic about that, uh, make connections, network, network, learn from other people. Um, and you'll be surprised how quickly you can build a network from nothing. If you're just a nice person that's being authentic, I think that's just like the key. Um, so I think that's probably one of the main things I would do. So I would start that early. I, I didn't really focus on that until I exited design my night. Um, so I'll do that. And then my previous advice about dissuading myself, anything is a good idea. So be very cynical mm -hmm. about what you're building um, and ask as many people you can. Don't be worried that they're going to steal your idea. They probably won't. Excellent. There's, by the way, there's a really good book, which I forgot to mention before, The Mum Test by Sam Fitzpatrick. I, have mm -hmm. you heard about it? No. Write it down. And it, so 
the re I, I'm pretty sure you don't need it, but <laughs> I think a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people who are listening to this might find it useful. And what it talks about is specifically, or maybe some of the people you're mentoring could benefit from it. It talks about how to do customer interviews, right? When you're starting a new business or even just launching a new feature in your existing product. The reason why it's called the mom test is because if you ask your mom for your business, for, for your, for feedback, your mom loves you and she wants you to be happy and she's going to say, yes, honey, that's a great idea. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, the mom test, the, the, the book teaches you how to ask questions, what kind of questions you should ask and how you should ask them. So that you actually get real information from your, you know, potential customers or whoever you're interviewing. Right. So that you don't get. So you don't ask like fluff questions or you don't get incorrect answers. So you don't get answers that are just, that just make you feel good. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, I think that's incredibly important because otherwise, exactly as you said, you might just uh, try to confirm that your idea works. You, you, well, instead you should really be learning how you could kill your idea, right? Because yeah. if it's a bad idea, it's going to die anyway. So you might as well just learn that sooner Early. rather than later. And it's a very, it's a, Thin book, I don't know, maybe 100 pages, if even. Uh, very easy to read, but very, very practical and I think super useful. Nice. Um, speaking of books, next question. What is the one book or person or experience or something that you would say that impacted your career and life the most? Uh, it could be several, but... I love... Um, so I, I did read uh, all, all of the... The, the founder books, so like Steve Jobs, uh, Alan Sugar, Richard Branson, uh, Bezos, or Building Amazon. So I read all of those, uh, which sort of, I, I always think those books are more about getting you pumped rather than giving you practical advice. Because, you know, it's like mm -hmm. you turn, you know, oh, we came up with this product, you turn the page and it's sold 10 million. Um, you're like, oh, well, that's the bit I need to learn about. So... I, I didn't learn from those, but I got really pumped. My favorite out of all of those, which is probably my favorite book, is Shoe Dog, um, which uh -huh. is about Nike. Right. Um, so that's just an incredible story. Um, and I think you forget with these brands that are now staple brands for us, they were all startups as well. Um, and I think the Nike story um, is an incredible one. So j just as a piece of, fiction even though it's not fiction just to read that book it's incredibly entertaining and obviously it's a brand that most people love and wear now so just to know where it came from uh, so i love that one um in terms of people uh i've sort of got i've surrounded myself later with people to learn from i wish i'd done it earlier uh, i think i've learned the benefit of that coming out of design my night uh so in terms of angel investors i respect and founders that have scaled up uh, different to how we did at Design My Night. So trying to surround myself with those people that I can learn from. Um, I think for us, a very important person uh, was a guy called John Bates, who became our first angel at Design My Night. But he was the um, professor of entrepreneurship at London Business School. And we actually, he was, the he is the dad of a friend of a friend who we met randomly at this friend of a friend's dinner party. And John was in the kitchen and he spoke to Andrew 
and just said, oh, you know, who are you? And he explained and he said, oh, what do you do? He said, well, actually, he didn't know who John was at this time. He said, oh, actually, I'm starting this new business called Design My Night. And he said, oh, well, I'm the profession of entrepreneurship at London Business School. You know, if you want, if you want to come in once a quarter um, and just chat to me about how it's all going, you know, feel free to do that. So we followed up and did. Um, we met him for like a year um, and gave us that incredible advice. Um, and then he was the one that was like, oh, okay, I think we should maybe start raising money for Design My Night. Um, I will be an angel and I know like five other people that I think would be interested. Let me introduce you to them. Um, and he became our chairman at Design My Night as well. So uh, I think it's wonderful to have older heads around you. I think we're surrounded by advice from people that have maybe scaled all of these cool tech companies. And they've done amazingly to scale those tech companies, but they're still like in their 20s or early 30s, um, who themselves probably have so much to learn as well. Um, so I, I really enjoy speaking to like older, wiser heads that have been there. They've seen everything. They've done it. They might not be as like cool in terms of the latest tech to use and all of that, but in terms of just mm -hmm. like mindset, attitude, structure, culture, um, the business, the bones of the business, uh, I feel like you can learn a lot from people like that. Um, and that's something we do with a lot of our team at Trumpet. So we have coaches um, and we and we try and get our coaches to be sort of older people that have maybe had like four or five jobs at like Microsoft and Amazon and Sky, but you know, they've, they've, they've done all the jobs there. They haven't just like scaled one successful business and, and knocked it out of the park. Um, so I think there's a lot to learn from, from people like that. So that's important to me. Very good point. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think it's easy to follow somebody who's very young and very successful because it feels like oh, they're kind of like me and like they, they know something mm -hmm. I don't know. There's something attractive about that. Right. Uh, but I completely agree. There's some kind of wisdom that only comes with years or decades of experience, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that you acquire. Uh, yeah. Um, what do you think, in your opinion, what separates okay founders from great founders? I mean, it's not a very fashionable thing to say, but I think just, just a single minded grit and determination to mm. succeed. Um, you know, whatever anyone says, whether it's fashionable or not to say it, it's incredibly hard work to get a startup off the ground. Um, and if you are not obsessed, if you are not in that business and you are thinking about it 24 seven and you're going on holiday and thinking about it and it's on the weekend and you're thinking about it, I don't think if you're of that mindset, then it's realistic that you will grow that into a big business. Of course, after that two or three years, once it's more established, it's not healthy mm. to operate like that. But, you know, I see a lot of chatter now about mental well-being, which is incredibly important, um, but it's also a bit idealistic. Like, I, mm. if, if, if you, you should really question yourself, like it looks so fun and cool to be a founder, but it's the hardest thing and the loneliest thing at times and the most stressful thing you'll ever do. And I think you really need to question yourself and your loved ones around you that if you don't think you are physically, emotionally, mentally, 
ready. I don't like using the word strong enough, but just ready to take on that type of challenge, then it might not be for you. And I think that's fine. Like you can still go and work in a startup or be an early employee at a startup, but you're not taking the stresses of owning that startup. Um, so I think people get allured into the, the world of startups and they think that the main way is to start your own. But I do say to people, like, it's the hardest thing you will ever do, probably, um, taking out personal stuff. So I think you just need to have that mentality uh, that you are just obsessed. And as we talked about early, like actually having loads of things in your mind, uh, not stressing you out but actually that actually is giving you energy. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, 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 I like to speak about that when I speak to founders. I almost try and scare them off being a founder because I think a lot of the, the rhetoric out there makes it seem like a very sexy thing to do. Um, and you hear about exits and all of that, and that's great. But um, it's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly hard. Um, and some people I just don't think are built to do it. That's fine. Mm. Yeah, one thing that I always, often say when people sometimes ask me is like, well, do I, re do I really need to work that much and that hard to, to build a business? And I'm like, well, you don't have to. But I think one way to look, to think about it is it's a little bit like sports, right? If you want to, and I think sports seem to be more, it's easier to understand that if you want to be world-class or if you want to be really, really good in certain sport, you'll have to outcompete everyone else who's doing that same sport, right? And that's going to take, I mean, talent and hard work and stress and strategy and you need to be really good at a lot of things and at the same time you need to have a certain amount of luck as well to succeed in the end right and when you put it that way to me it becomes very obvious it's like well no you don't have to work all that time but know that others are and i don't know maybe if you're way better at everything else you can still be successful or you can still build a big business or whatever it is that you're after. But yeah, you just need to be aware that you're, it's a competition at the end of the day, right? Even if you're in a market with no competitors, there's always customers are always have an alternative in whatever you're doing. Right. Um, and I think yeah, that I think makes sports, it more kind of clear. I think sports is a great comparison. And I've spoken to, to athletes who are angel investors as well. Um, and to be, yeah, to be an elite sports person, you need to commit all day to training and practicing and weekends and you know it's, it's since you're like an eight-year-old that is your dedicate you know i think i saw federer you know his last uh, exhibition match he did and he did like a very emotional speech and it was just like this is dedicated to just like my parents who since i was six was taking me to tennis lessons and tennis competitions and to my kids and my wife because everything was about tennis uh, and they just had to follow me around the world for tennis. Like you, you just have to be so all in to become an elite athlete. Um, and as you say, to become an elite founder, to get an exit and whatever, um, you have to have that same commitment because if you don't, mm. other people will. Um, so, yeah, that athlete mindset, I think, is a very telling comparison to founders. Yeah. All right, Nick, we're going to wrap up at this point. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your time, for sharing your story and all your your knowledge. Really appreciate it. 
Um, I think it's going to be valuable and interesting for everyone who's listening. We're going to link to all your, to your LinkedIn, to Trumpet, um, to any other resources in the, in the episode notes. And yeah, really appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening until the end. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the content, please do me a favor and click the like button on YouTube or give us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Uh, leave a comment, subscribe if you want to hear more from us. Uh, that really helps also to get the podcast out there and that helps me get more interesting guests and create even more interesting content. So I really appreciate it if you do that. If you have any other comments, questions, feel free to message me. You can find me on Twitter. That's usually the best channel. Um, the link should be somewhere in the description and uh, yeah check out my Twitter I try to tweet interesting stuff about similar content that we talk about on the podcast um, key insights from the podcast as well and just generally stuff that I learn and stuff that I do so see you thanks <laughs>